My warning for today's episode is that we will be discussing suicide as well as the death of a child and some brief mentions of sexual assault and childhood trauma. Thank you for listening. I'm Haley. I'm Andy. And this is Dead Endings. jump right into the case now. Rebecca Zahau was born on March 15th in 1979 to Robert and Perry Zahau in Burma. Burma was experiencing a lot of political upheaval at the time and it's now Myanmar which is still experiencing horrible political upheaval like it's not good. She was the second child. The couple first had Mary their first daughter and then Rebecca was born not long after Mary. I think there's just a few years between them. Her father was, and her grandfather, she says, were tribal leaders of their territory in Burma, and she later would tell people that she was a Burmese princess. I don't know if that's true. But it sounds badass. And even if it's not, like, do whatever. Like, you had a rough childhood growing up. Like, you want to tell people you're a Burmese princess? I don't care. Do it. Yep. Her father, Robert, did spend some time in prison because he was kind of on the wrong side of the government. Like, they were striking out against anybody speaking up against them, anybody who disagreed with them. So he spent some time in prison. When he was released, he immediately tried to seek political asylum for him and his family and get them out of Burma. Smart. Which is how they ended up in Nepal, because they were granted political asylum in Nepal. He became an ordained minister, and they stayed in Nepal for 10 years. They added a third daughter... Um, But the family was really, really poor. Food was scarce. There were stories about they would try to, like, trap pigeons by, like, luring pigeons and then killing them to eat. Meat is meat. And then on top of, like, struggling financially, the dean of the girls' elementary school started to take interest in them Um. and come over to the house and be like, sit on my lap. And then started inviting the girls over to his house to spend the night. And it came out that he was molesting them and assaulting them oh my god that's the parents knew but they did not know what to do because they were um, asylum seekers they weren't technically part of the community and they were scared because this man was like a big person in the community and they were worried that if they spoke out against him they would face like retribution and be like pushed out of the community that's so rough to be stuck in that spot and like your children are being victims of sexual abuse and you don't even know because realistically like it felt very easy at first to be judgmental and be like you knew that your children were being molested but if you factor in everything i still think that i as a parent would be like somebody's gonna be bleeding yeah i was gonna say i was like i'd be very angry and but i i do understand that there's this is a little bit harder you're in a place where this isn't your language this isn't where you're from are you even gonna be believed like Yep. What kind of retaliation would there be? So the older sister, Mary, began eventually, like, sacrificing herself and saying that she would just go over to the dean's house alone to protect her younger sisters. Wow. The three sisters say that they just got over this, that they were pretty unaffected, that it was just something they laughed about later on in life. Uh Um... 
I don't think that that's how childhood trauma works. Nope. I, I, I know that's not how trauma works. I don't think that they ever even sought out therapy. They were just like, we had enough struggles that it was just kind of one of the struggles. And oops, I hit the cord. And we didn't really know what was even happening at the time. So we were just kind of able to laugh it off and move on. And I bring this up because that whether or not Rebecca did just laugh it off comes into play later. Yeah. So when Rebecca was 16, her youngest sister was born, which is the fourth daughter, and the family moves from Nepal to Germany still as political refugees. Rebecca attended Cavalry Chapel Bible College in Austria, and at the age of 21, she met a man named Neil, who was also attending the college, but he was 25, so he was a little bit older. They hung out for a few months. They met in January. They began dating over the summer. And by that November in 2001, he traveled to Germany, talked to Rebecca's parents, said, I want to propose to her. They gave him their approval, and Rebecca said yes. I always thought it was cute to get, like, the parents' approval. Like, I don't think it's necessary. It, like, but it's I cute think to it's be like, cute. hey, this is what's going to happen. Like, I yeah. like this. Are you okay with it? Yeah, I... When I proposed to Hunter... His family later came back and they were like joking, being like, you didn't ask our approval. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And Hunter was even like, did you talk to my parents and ask my mom if it was okay that you, you proposed to me? Yeah, is it all right if I, we have my hand to your marriage? <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> so Neil, after he asked her family, he returned home to Long Island, New York, where his mother lived. And Rebecca followed on a fiance's visa, but she wouldn't be able to stay long because of visas and complications with that so they ended up getting married pretty quickly in 2002 that makes sense and then is i'm sorry go ahead i was gonna instantly be like is she staying in america yeah because they're married and that's where they're at right now okay yeah so she marries him in 2002 um the marriage went downhill pretty quickly oh well fuck uh, Neil had trouble holding down jobs and just being an overall adult, whereas Rebecca had to, like, fight to survive her whole life, so I think it was just second nature to her to be like, okay, I'm gonna get a job, I'm gonna waitress, I'm gonna work as many hours as I can, I'm gonna make sure my bills are paid, I'm gonna make sure I'm taken care of. Yep. Whereas Neil would be like, I don't want this job, and he would, like, fuck off somewhere. I'm both people. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Good for her, though. He then started getting controlling and possessive. Ah. <sighs> It seems like he was the shitty type of insecure. He constantly wanted to know where she was. Rebecca told her sisters that there was abuse. He would deny that he was physically abusing her, but then later he admitted that he would, like, threaten to drive off a bridge with both of them in the car. Sir, that's abusive. That is extremely abusive and very fucked up. And she would say that he would get on top of her and hold her down and, like, squeeze her neck, but not actually choke her. But all of that is abusive. Yes. Even if he's not full out punching her in the face. It's abusive. Rebecca would reach her breaking point with him and his behavior. She'd leave him. He would cry. He would love bomb her. She would go back. The couple decided to move to California to try to get a fresh start. Quickly becomes a theme for their relationship is that we'll just change where we're at and maybe our relationship will get better. It's probably because so many people knew that they're like, hey, honey, like, your relationship is not okay. And he's like, well, people don't need to talk to us about our relationship. We're gonna move. I think that they were just young. And I don't, you've, you've had those moments I where have. you're like, if I leave where I'm at, everything will be better. I've had those <laughs> moments too. 
I remember nearing the end of my marriage when my ex was just like, well, if we just move to this place, then everything will be fine. And I remember sitting there and realizing, oh, this is a huge red flag. This person literally thinks that if we just move to another town that all of our problems are going to go away. Running away doesn't help anything. So in 2004, Rebecca suffered a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Their relationship hadn't improved. They were just in a new place. She had taken a job and she was working and she attended a fundraiser for part of her work. At the fundraiser, she was 25 at this point, she met a man there named Michael who was a 46-year-old martial arts instructor. He felt immediately attracted to her and he noticed she wasn't wearing a ring, so he asked her out on a date and she said yes. They lived about two hours away from each other. They met in the middle. They had their first date. They immediately connected. It was just one of those situations that you have with people sometimes where you yep. meet them and you're like, oh, we've known each other our whole lives. Okay. It's so awesome to feel those moments. Like, I even, like, I'm just getting goosebumps now, like, remembering those moments with so many people that I've had, you included. And it's just like, yes, little soulmates. Yeah. Uh, she started crying at the end of the first date and he was like, what's wrong? And she's like, I've just not felt so happy in so long. Oh. And he, that didn't, like, scare him away. He was just like, I feel like I feel the same. Like, I'm so happy. That's so sweet. I'm a little hopeless romantic. <laughs> I'm like, go, Rebecca. <laughs> the pair went on a few more dates, and they began meeting each other's friends, as well as some of his family members. Rebecca's own family, by this point, had relocated to the United States, but they were in Missouri. Okay. And she was in California. One day, though, Rebecca admitted to Michael that she hadn't been fully honest with him, and she told him that she was still technically married. She said that they had filed for divorce, they were just waiting for the paperwork to go through, that she was still living in the same house with Neil, but that they had separate bedrooms, and she also told him that the marriage had been arranged by her father. Mm. I don't... I don't think that it was. That wasn't the vibe that I got. Yeah. Maybe she was young and felt pressure to agree to marry him. That would make sense. So Michael wasn't really okay with this. Um, I don't blame him because you don't want to start dating somebody and then find out, hey, I'm technically still married and living with my ex. It's very, yeah, that's very complex. He told her that he doesn't date married women, that she needed to get it sorted out. But he also, I think, was already to the infatuation point. So he didn't walk away from the relationship either. He was just kind of standing by, seeing how the things were going. And it was pretty much like, let me know when the paperwork comes through. In the meantime, I want us to slow down. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think so, too. So, the problem is, though, is that it's not clear on how much what Rebecca told him was true. Oh. It's not clear on if they were actually separated when she started dating Michael. Um, neither of them had filed for divorce. Oh. So, they weren't waiting for paperwork to just go through. She just really wanted a good thing to last. I bring up these things because this is also a common theme for Rebecca, is that she seems to tell lies. I think based on the lies that I know she's telling, I think that she's a people pleaser. I think that she doesn't want people to be mad at her or disappointed with her. So she will tell lies to try to soften blows or make herself look better. Look better. That makes sense. I think sometimes she has this idea of who she wants to be in her mind, and when she doesn't meet that standard she set for herself, she sometimes lies about what she said or how she handled the situation so that she comes off as, like, stronger than she is. 
and I understand that. I personally really, really like being honest, even when it's uncomfortable, because I don't like keeping track of lies, and I feel shitty inside. Yep. But I'm not, yeah, I'm not trying to judge her. It just plays a part into, because she tells these lies and these stories, it's hard to figure out what is true and what was going through her head at certain times. That makes sense. Rebecca's family didn't approve of her relationship with Michael because she was still married, and I think they really wanted her to work things out with Neil, but Rebecca ended up moving into Michael's house in March of 2005, and he was like, you can stay with me until your divorce goes through. Okay, that was really nice of him. Yeah. Um, Things were going smoothly. Rebecca settled into her routine. She would leave for home the same time each day. She would come home each day at the same time. And about a month or two into living together, on April 25th, she left for work, but she didn't come home. Michael called her friend, and her friend hadn't heard from her. Michael waited all evening for Rebecca to come home, and by the next day, when he still hadn't heard from Rebecca, he went to the police and reported her missing. The next morning after that, on April 27th, so two days later, he called her place of work, and they said that she hadn't shown up for work at all. A few hours after he called her work, he did get a phone call from Rebecca. Oh. She sounded upset and he asked her where she was. She said that she had been taken by some men and was only able to call because she had gotten, like, she had asked to go to the bathroom and was sneaking a phone call from the bathroom. Hmm. Michael had some doubts, but Rebecca continued to make these calls to him and she would say that she was in the back of a car being driven around, that she was being held by these men. He called police and told them, like, I'm getting these weird calls from her. Something's not right. A little while later, police called her back, called him back, and said that they'd gotten in touch with Rebecca and that she was fine. But by this point, he was worried that she had just told police that because she was being, like, held against her will and couldn't tell them that she wasn't safe. Right. So he was really paranoid, and he said that during one of the calls, uh, she sounded really robotic, and it sounded like she was reading something, telling him that they couldn't be together anymore. And so he said, who's making you say this? And she kind of said, ow, a few times and was like whimpering and he could hear a man's voice in the background. And the man's voice came on the phone being like, I know where you live. Jesus. And he was like, okay, meet me outside. We'll duke it out. Yeah. I mean, he's a martial arts artist. Like, um, <laughs> what are you going to do? But then the call ended. Rebecca called back and said, she just wanted to reiterate what she said earlier. They can't be together anymore. She has to go back to Neil. Uh And nobody ever came to Michael's house to fight him. (laughs) On April 28th, (laughs) Michael happened to be walking by a window in his house when he glanced outside and noticed Rebecca standing in his front yard. Yeah, your face. Yeah, it's just freaking crazy. He ran out there, they embraced. She told him that Neil and some other men had been waiting for her at work the Monday morning and smashed her car window, grabbed her, and took her. And Michael was like, we're going to the police. And she didn't want to go to the police because she said that Her visa wasn't, like, she wasn't there technically legally, and she was worried she would be deported. But Michael was like, something. Yeah. Michael was like, no, we're going. When they got to the police, she went into a back room with some detectives, and Michael waited in the, like, waiting room area. He was not aware of what she was telling them in the back room, and what she told them was that on Monday she went to work, met with her ex-husband, and decided to get back together with him. That she wanted to be removed from the missing persons list. Rebecca. Yeah, and that she was fine. Oh my goodness, honey. So they walk back out, and Michael is worried that she just told them that it was her choice because Neil would, like, retaliate. And it's never been clarified on 
what that situation was. Okay. I lean more towards that she was not kidnapped. I think that she's just, like, very confused and put in a hard place and wants... She doesn't want trouble with her abusive husband, but she wants, you know, this really awesome guy that obviously cares a lot about her. Yeah, I don't... I have no idea what happened. And also, like, abusive... Like, domestic violence and abusive relationships are very, very confusing. Yeah. And a lot of people often go back and forth between deciding what they want out of fear and... Yep. You know. And that's... I don't think she was sure what she wanted, but the question of whether or not she was, like, forcibly taken from her work and held against her will for days, that's... I don't know what's happening there. Yeah, a stretch. Just a little bit. So they return home, and the next week, Rebecca left again without any warning. She sent him some emails saying that she had gone to Oregon to work on herself and sort out some things in her personal life. She was a very passionate person, and her emails were sometimes a little bit over the top. Like, she would write, quote, I have died a million deaths just thinking about you and knowing how much I love you. Oh my gosh. She told him that she only wants to be with him. She told him, the sun and moon pass by without waiting to be noticed. <laughs> just all these messages were pouring in. Interesting. She wouldn't come back. She would tell him that... Part of her thinks that she should just convince him to not love her anymore so that he could find somebody better for him. Very, like, teenage girl type thing yes. to say. When at this point she's 25, 26 years old. And it's also when like, what's in Oregon? settling down. We'll get there. Uh-huh, right. He told her essentially that she needed to grow up. He <laughs> could. But then, but then he wrote her a breakup letter and read it to her over the phone. Oh my goodness. I'm like, sir, you're 46 years old, but you're like writing a letter and then reading it out loud to your girlfriend over the phone. She later told her sisters that she broke up with him by not responding to his phone calls and messages, which isn't like a huge lie. That's just something where sometimes people, I, it was mutual. Yeah. Rebecca had moved to Portland with Neil in another attempt to work on their marriage. His brother or brother-in-law lived there. He had a family member there. Uh, so they were trying to start over again in a new place, but Neil was still Neil and Rebecca was still Rebecca, and police were being called on their arguments. Rebecca very quickly decided that she'd made the wrong choice, and then she went to Missouri to be with her family. Well, I'm glad she went to be with her family. That did not last long because Neil no. decided that he wanted another new start in Pennsylvania, and on the drive from Oregon to Pennsylvania, he stopped in Missouri and picked up Rebecca. Oh my goodness. I think the fact that her family was pressuring her to get back together with him probably played a role in this quick switch back. So they went to Pennsylvania. And not long after they got to Pennsylvania, Rebecca started dating somebody else, and Neil was understandably not happy because if yeah. you are agreeing to work on your marriage you wouldn't date somebody else you usually stay you know pretty close and loyal to your, your abusive relationship like it's i don't blame her i don't blame her either though but i also don't blame being like hey i wanted to work on our marriage can you not date other people yep but also don't abuse people exactly so they just have a whole complex relationship. But he was like, it's either me or him. And she was like, I choose not you. <laughs> and so Neil left and moved to Colorado. He pretty much left Rebecca alone. He started dating another woman. Rebecca found out that he was dating another woman. No, don't, don't. She called him and told him that she wanted to give their marriage another chance. And Neil ditched his girlfriend and Rebecca moved to join him in Colorado. 
it's just like mind games on each other and they just like i think that maybe she liked how obsessive he was yeah the thought of somebody loves you that much but then when you're actually in it you're like i don't like this yeah Because I've dated people who are very into me, and I've liked how much they like me, but then when you have to deal with the negative side, you're like, this is insane. (laughs) At the end of 2007, the couple went to visit Neil's dad and stepmom in Arizona. Rebecca liked the heat, and they decided to move there in early 2008. But their relationship was on the outs again, and Rebecca told her family she was moving there alone, but Neil ended up going (laughs) along with her. A year goes by, and Rebecca and Neil are doing their thing, being together, not being together, I think that she wanted to leave him. She was the people pleaser. I think she was scared to leave him. I I don't think she felt comfortable saying we are done. Yeah, it's just a roller coaster of a relationship. In April of 2009, Rebecca was arrested. Ooh. She had been at Macy's when she dropped over $1,000 worth of jewelry into one of her shopping bags. A female security guard followed her into the bathroom and Rebecca walked out wearing the jewelry and the guard looked in the stalls and found the tags in one of the like tampon garbages. <laughs> And they watched her walk out into the parking lot, and they quickly grabbed her and escorted her back in. Yep. She was facing intense charges because it was over $1,000, so it was a class 6 felony, with up to a year and a half in jail and over $100,000 in fines. Jeez, over $100,000? She said that she knew that stealing was wrong and that she had thought about paying for the jewelry, but she just decided not to. She, like, I think she was trying to, like, find some type of thrill and adrenaline rush. There's something going on with her. There is no record of her having done something like this before or after. She pled to a misdemeanor. She spent 400 some dollars in fines, and she had to take part in, like, a shoplifting rehab program. <laughs> shoplifting rehab program. <laughs> it was. It was, like, a rehab program for shoplifters. I'm well, glad that they're focusing on rehabilitation. That's good. That's nice. In the fall of 2009, Rebecca was in the process of moving into a three-bedroom home, and Neil was... Right along moving, with her? Moving right in with her. <laughs> they had differing stories on whether or not they were still working on their marriage. And again, Neil has proven that he's abusive and shitty. So I'm like, there's a good chance that you weren't, but you think you were. Yeah. And Rebecca was working for an eye doctor and a patient came in and they hit it off. He was able to guess her accent, which surprised her and also surprises me because she was born in Burma, grew up partly in Nepal, partly in Germany. And then, like, went to school in Austria and then came to the United States. Like, how would you guess her accent? But apparently this was, like, a trick this guy had where he could just... (laughs) He was a businessman and he interacted a lot with people all over the world so he could guess people's accents. Good for him. He asked her out to dinner and she said yes. His name was Jonah Shackney. Wait, Shackney? Shackney. I like it. I always read it as Shackney, and then I watched something on it, and then it says Shackney, so I have a really hard time not saying Shackney. <laughs> Rebecca says that she had no idea who he was when they went out for the first time, but the pair clicked. By this time, Rebecca was 30, and Jonah was 52 years old, and he just happened to be the CEO and founder of the Medicis Pharmaceutical Company that Neil's stepmom worked for. Ooh, interesting. So now we're going to talk about Jonah for a minute. Jonah was born in 1957 in Arizona, which is where they're at now. And he was the older of two boys, with his younger brother being Adam. Adam works his way into the story later. He was outgoing and athletic, and he did well in school. He attended college and spent some time working in the capital. And then he worked as a lawyer and as a strategic advisor to pharmaceutical companies before launching his own company in 1988, which came to be known as Medicis. 
Metasis. That just sounds like something off of, like, an anime I would watch. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> he was living in New York when he met a woman named Kimberly, who was a pharmaceutical saleswoman for one of his competitors. They got married in 1993, and while on their honeymoon, Jonah started to openly question whether or not they had made the right choice in getting married. Oh my gosh. Because it was a rough relationship. Okay. But they stayed together, and they had two kids. In 1997, Jonah met another pharmaceutical saleswoman named Dina, who came to work for him and his company, and they began an affair. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I was like, the marriage is good enough to have two kids, and I'm like, but not good enough to not cheat. And I, like, these aren't good things, but we are all people. Yeah. And we all make bad choices. Absolutely. So I'm... I'm not hard judging them. I just need to share the facts of the situation. I get to judge them a little bit. (laughs) Kimberly filed for divorce in 1999, but it wasn't final until 2001, and Jonah married Dina in 2002. Oh my gosh. In 2005, Dina gave birth to her and Jonah's only child together, a son they named Max. And Dina and Jonah had very different personalities. Like, Dina was the type who would, like talk to psychics and have crystals. Yes, I was hoping you would go there. Jonah was a pharmaceutical (laughs) businessman. (laughs) He's just like, I like her vibe. (laughs) So they didn't make a great pair. It's like the beginning of a sitcom show where like this is cute at first and then it gets very unrealistic because you're like, oh no, they wouldn't they wouldn't like break through their walls and like connect. They would do what Jonah and Dina did. Oh. So the relationship got super volatile. He would say that she tried to choke him. She would say that he sicked his guard dog on her to bite her. Oh my god. At one point, she called the police and told them to call her psychiatrist to get more information about Jonah's background. Weird as fuck. The police called Dina's psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said that Jonah was very controlling and that Dina felt trapped by his controlling behavior. Okay, well, I'm glad that the the investigators were thorough. I don't think that's fair. But it's it's her psychiatrist. I don't think her psychiatrist talked to him. They just take what she said. It'd be different if it was like like, couples. The psych. I don't. I don't understand why that happened. I'm. Yeah. I feel like there's a process to things, and that was not one of the steps in the process on how to handle that. What if it was Dina's friend? It was just like, yep. So yeah, I felt like that was kind of inappropriate. And I'm not laughing at, like, they were obviously abusive to each other, and that's not funny. It's just, like, the exhaustingness of, like, you're saying he did that, you're saying she did that. Like, I don't know what's true. Oh my god, like, just walk away from each other. Yes. The two continued to argue. Jonah left Christmas Eve 2008. He was done. Moved out of the house. They were together for a while. Yeah, they made it three years after their son was born. Nine years total, I think. When Jonah had met Rebecca in the fall of 2009, the divorce had just been finalized, but they were still arguing over, like, custody of Max. Jonah was very upfront with Rebecca that he didn't want to have any more children in his life. He had three by two women. He was good to go. Yeah. I get that. Rebecca was okay with this at first. Again, she's a people pleaser. I think that later she started to have some doubts on whether or not she was actually okay with that and whether she jumped into that too fast of agreeing to that being okay. Right. She told Neil that he needed to move out. She told her sisters that she had to threaten to cut Neil off 
from the financial support that she would give him in order for him to leave. But records show that Neil was the one who actually filed the divorce papers. Interesting. So I don't know. Like, she said that she had to, like, bully Neil into signing the divorce papers, but he was the one who filed. Well, I'm... At the end of it, like, I'm glad that it's ending. Yeah. Neil and Rebecca were done with each other. Finally. Finally, yeah. Jonah and Rebecca begin their relationship, and Rebecca finds herself dating somebody with two ex-wives and three kids, and as anyone who is part of a blended family knows, that that dynamic is not always easy. No, that's a lot to handle. I I mean, two ex-wives. So many. I have so much empathy for Rebecca. I don't think she understood at all what she was getting into. Jonah's ex-wives were not thrilled about Jonah's relationship with Rebecca, and neither was his teenage daughter that he had with his first wife. I was wondering what his two, was it like a uh, two daughters or? I don't know. They don't, I think it was a daughter and a son from the first marriage, but I'm not totally sure because the only one that really gets referenced is the teenage daughter who they had issues with. Okay. Yeah, his older kids don't really come into the story a lot. But she was not happy, the the teenage daughter. Yeah, she was just like. Dad's dating another chick. In the spring of 2010, Jonah was away on a family trip when Rebecca moved into his house. Like, on a whim? Like, was it a surprise? Did they decide that together? They had not really talked about it. Okay. He hadn't even had a chance to, like, talk to his kids about the possibility. So they came back and she was just living in their house and the kids were not happy and she moved out but then moved back in a month later. I think that she was trying to make a grand gesture and be like, we connect so well, like, we're clicking, I want to be around you more, like, you want to be around me more. Maybe there was a comment that he made that got, like, misconstrued, but she didn't understand that when somebody has kids, it's it's complicated. Yeah. You can't just be like, let's just live together. Nope. Yeah, I don't think she totally understood the complexity of her new relationship. So issues began pretty immediately. I have zero judgment for Rebecca on how she dealt with these issues because the issues weren't really between her and Jonah. She was now in the role as a stepmom, even though they weren't married, she was living there. He has kids. She's a part of their life. Yeah, and she's never had experience with, like, kids before that we know of. Rebecca and the two older kids didn't really get along. She felt like they behaved badly and that they weren't disciplined. I don't know. I can't say anything. She felt like Jonah's teenage daughter was allowed to be disrespectful and rude to her. She felt mistreated by his ex-wives. I think that she went about dealing with this completely wrong. Again, I don't judge her. I have also gone about issues completely wrong in step-family dynamics. I think that the older kids were old enough that she could have just disengaged from them. Yep. Done her own thing while they're there. And then gotten back in, like, they're teenagers. Yeah, because they're going to do whatever they want. No Refuse to communicate with the ex-wives. That's not your problem. Jonah's children are separate from your relationship. If you don't feel like he's disciplining his kids well, you're not having kids with him anyway. Just yeah. ignore it. This this younger son, who's like six at this point, is different. It's harder. I think he was four, maybe, or five. But yeah, I think she should have disengaged. But instead, she tried to throw herself into it more to like prove that she's part of the family, that she belongs, that she's helpful. And that's the people-pleasing, like, aspect in her. There's so much when you're in the role of a stepmom, whether you have biological kids or not, that you feel like you have to, like, prove yourself. She wanted to show her worth. She wanted to show her importance. She seemed to put a lot of pressure on herself to essentially be the perfect partner for Jonah, and Jonah didn't really have any complaints. He said that he was happy with her, that he was the happiest he'd ever been, that... Uh, He told his best friend that they were great for each other, that she brought him a lot of peace and calm after he'd had such tumultuous marriages. 
they both were really into like healthy living they were both very physically fit they seemed like a good pair that's good because this would be it's something completely different from what she's used to and he later makes a comment that i find um relatable where he says that when it was just him and rebecca that they had a relationship that was just it could have thrived it could have been fine but there's all the other factors of the family and the exes and that complicates things Rebecca and Jonas' youngest son, Max, got along great. They both seemed to really enjoy one another, and in in September of 2010, realizing how much Rebecca meant to her son, Dina asked Rebecca to go out to coffee as, like, a way to kind of get to know her more. Smart. Good. I like it. And again, I've been both of these women, so I... I will say what happens between them. I don't... I don't have a side to take. Yeah. I don't think either of them handled things great. And I don't blame them for that because it's fucking hard. So they didn't really have anything in common. At one point, Dina point blank asked Rebecca how she felt about Jonah not wanting any more children, which was inappropriate. Yeah. They have different stories about how Rebecca reacted. Rebecca says that she stood firm and was like, listen, you and Jonah are not a thing anymore. We started after you got to let it go. That's not your business. Yep. Dina says that Rebecca like awkwardly was like, I don't know. Like it's, we'll figure that out later. Yep. Max had asked Rebecca to come to a race at his school that he was in. He attended. She attended. Jonah attended. Dina attended. Max came in second. He was upset. I think that he was, like, used to winning. And he was emotional. He ran to Rebecca, threw himself into her arms, and she was comforting him. Aw, but I can also understand Dina's, like, uh... Dina pulled Max out of Rebecca's arms, said, that's my son. Ugh. But like she, no judgment. It's so hard. It, it is hard. I just feel I feel bad for Max because yep. like that must have been a confusing moment yep. for him. So then, um, Dina's sister was also there. Dina's twin sister, Nina. Dina and Nina. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel love for them. I created characters off The Sims like that. Yeah. So <laughs> Dina and Nina are there, and Nina uses this opportunity to start essentially yelling at Rebecca because a housemaid told Dina that Rebecca had thrown out family photos that had Dina and Max in them. So Nina's like, what's wrong with you throwing out family photos? Like, this is not the time to have this conversation. But it's what was happening. And Rebecca's like, that's not what happened. But then had to kind of, like, admit, like, that that is kind of what happened. She threw out (laughs) family photos. Again, I'm not judging. It was the wrong choice. But... We all make bad choices. Yeah. Um, and then they started criticizing Rebecca for telling Max that she was an eye doctor and a princess, and it just got... Comfort the kid. Yeah. Help the kid figure out how to process failures. Stop, Stop screaming at each other. This sounds very on par for some of my own experiences. <laughs> These are just, like, very emotionally driven women who are triggered as fuck. Neither of them were emotionally ready to be in the situations they were in. No, and... I've also Uh, had to be in situations that I wasn't emotionally ready. I've seen other women have to be in situations with me that they weren't emotionally ready for. It's hard. So Dina felt weird about Rebecca. She started to look into her background, and she found out about Rebecca's previous marriage, which she hadn't known about, which just gave her more fuel. And she also found out about Rebecca's shoplifting incident. Did she ask the psychics about it? I don't think so. She did throw Rebecca under the bus with Jonah, though, because Jonah didn't know about the shoplifting incident, and Dina let him know. 
Oh my god. But when Jonah asked Rebecca about it, Rebecca said that she was in the store shopping and she picked it up to look at it when she got a distressing phone call and she just ran out of the store without thinking about it. But Rebecca could have been honest and like, I made a mistake. It was like... But Rebecca's a people pleaser and she doesn't want Jonah to think badly of her. Oh my goodness. This is just creating such a big snowball of disaster. Yes. So Jonah did say at one point that he noticed some things that were weird about Rebecca but I think that Jonah is not a very... Observant? He's intelligent, and he is emotionally intelligent, but he also has, like, blind spots. Yeah. So he said that it was weird because they would travel places, and Rebecca would want to pose for photos with him when they traveled places, and then she would hang those photos up around the house. Okay. I th- and he thought that was weird. He thought that was weird? Yeah. I think that's kind of like... I think that's normal. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, I think that's cute and normal. That's like, hey, this is a healthy relationship that I have and I like showing us off. Like, I, that's something that's probably that was new to her and she was excited about it. Here, this is a moment where I didn't fight with my partner <laughs> while we went to the store. This is really cool. Like, I... <laughs> Well, and keep in mind that he's, he's a multimillionaire. Because he's the CEO and founder of a pharmaceutical company. So they're traveling to, like, Hawaii. Yeah. And she wants to pose for pictures with him in, like, Hawaii. Yeah, so why not? Why not? And he thinks it's weird. It's like, gosh. <laughs> in November of 2010, uh, Rebecca's search history showed that she was searching how to deal with stress, how to deal with a difficult stepdaughter, how to let go of painful memories, how to have a healthy relationship. So she's trying to like she's better trying to herself sort her shit out. and yeah, she's she's being proactive about like what can she do to help these aspects in her life. I appreciate that. I like that. When I google things like that, I'm usually reaching a breaking point. Yep. So that's just a nice sign of this is where she was at. She's trying, but she's struggling. It seems like they really cared about each other though, like her and Jonah. Like I do genuinely believe that they did, but they both had very toxic relationships prior to this and then she's trying to be the stepmom they're trying to have a relationship it's a lot to navigate it is so much in the summer of 2011 jonah and rebecca were struggling to stay afloat in their relationship they would fight about the kids again the discipline issues that is the majority of my fights with my co-partner parent and i'm sure like jonah probably didn't take Rebecca seriously because, like, Rebecca didn't have experience of her own either, you know? So And I've been there, and it's this mix of, as a parent, I understand because I'm not going to take somebody who's not a parent's advice Yeah, very well. Like, I might listen to it, but it's like, okay, that's cool that you have that opinion. But then when I've been the stepmom without my own kids, it's like, will somebody fucking listen to me? Yes. Jonah and Rebecca had agreed that unless there was significant improvement in the dynamic between the whole family, that they were going to be stepping back from their relationship at the end of the summer. So it was kind of like, we need to work on this, otherwise we need to step back, because this is not functioning. It's a healthy way to look at it, though. And it did seem like the relationship between Rebecca and her stepdaughter was improving slightly, but Rebecca was still under a lot of stress. She would stay up late and want to talk to Jonah about their issues, so she wasn't getting sleep. She was worried about Dina with Max because she felt like Dina wasn't responsible with Max and, like, she wasn't watching him well, which... She was writing notes in her phone, like, journal entries about her feelings and her doubts in the relationship and her unhappiness, but on the outside, she was showing a lot of positivity and, like, Like, she's trying so hard. Yes, she is. 
She was telling her family that she expected to be engaged soon. That's the threat. When they were talking about possibly ending Thank the relationship. You. Step back, yeah. During the summer, they stayed at their home in Coronado, California. Their summer home. Their summer home. So they have their home in Arizona, but in the summer, from Memorial Day to Veterans Day, they stay in Coronado Springs, California. Swanky. So their summer home just happened to be the Spreckles Mansion. And just in case you don't know who the Spreckles are... Me! I don't know them! I'm gonna tell you. Good, because I was lost. (laughs) <laughs> this isn't this is just me being excited because i saw this and i'm like i know who the spreckles are <laughs> yes the spreckles mansion was a historic building built by the son of sugar king klaus spreckles i learned a decent amount about klaus spreckles a few years ago when i read a book called the lost kingdom hawaii's last queen the sugar kings and america's first imperial venture by julia flynn Seiler. So Klaus had started off as an immigrant from Germany, moving to America, super dirt poor. He established a bunch of businesses before he started getting into the sugar trade in California. He eventually started a plantation in Hawaii and created a town around the plantation that he called Spreckelsville. And he employed a lot of immigrants from Asian nations uh, to work on his plantations. Spreckelsville. He would loan the then king... Kalakaua. He would then loan then King Kalakaua money, leaving the king and Hawaii in debt to him, which gave him a really fucked up power. He was able to increase his land holdings, and he eventually owned all of the waterways in Hawaii. Jeez. So this man, He's for a very time period, smart, owned Hawaii essentially, yep. which made for sugar. Him, yeah, which made him not popular with the people of Hawaii. And he started receiving death threats, and then the king's sister took over and became queen. Oh, I... I literally I, just searched these. It was... Oh, I don't even want to try hers, because I don't want to mess it up. So the king's sister took over and became Queen Lily Wokalani. Nice. And the relationship that Klaus had with the Hawaiian monarchy ceased. Klaus had a handful of children, and it was his son, John D. Spreckles, who had the home built in Coronado in 1908. There's another uh, Spreckles mansion in San Francisco, which was built by Klaus's other son, Adolf. But this one is in Coronado Springs, and it was built by John. He named his son Adolf? Yeah. But it's like way it's before. before. <laughs> it's beforehand. I just... So this nice. property in Coronado <laughs> was 12,750 square feet. Shit. It had three floors plus an attic and a basement, as well as a guest house, a caretaker's cottage, and a garage apartment. That's huge. Just a nice little summer home, you know? And there's only going to be like five people there. Don't you have a nice little summer home? A nice little summer cottage? I don't even have a car. (laughs) (laughs) So Coronado Springs was an extremely safe place to live. People kept their doors unlocked, and from 1999 to 2011, the town had only one homicide, which was a couple who died by murder-suicide. Jonah and Rebecca had been looking into getting a security dog. Jonah ended up paying somebody like 10k to train a Doberman puppy. Is he gonna sick him on Rebecca? No. <laughs> he doesn't get the chance because they get the puppy and Rebecca thinks that it looks too cute and not like scary enough, so they send it back. A Doberman? Yeah. I think they look, I mean, they're adorable, but like, I feel One like. One of they're... the neighbors was like, oh, your new dog's so cute, and Rebecca was like, damn it. This is supposed to be scary. <laughs> Literally, like, that's. So they send it back, but then a few days later, Rebecca says to a neighbor that she wishes they'd kept it, but then doesn't explain why. And no one explains 
why they thought they needed a scary-looking security dog in such a safe place. Yeah. Did they get one? Did they get another one? No. It was cute, too, wasn't it? So, (laughs) Rebecca also told her family that Jonah was worried that somebody was going to poison him. But Jonah was like, I was never worried about that. But he thinks that she misunderstood a comment that he made about, like, he's really allergic to garlic. So when they're in a restaurant and somebody accidentally gives him something with garlic, he's like, oh, they're trying to poison me. Oh. And she's from a different country, so maybe that humor. She took it very literally. Yeah. That makes sense. But then it's hard, too, because she tells weird stories and maybe she just wanted to be like, we're really intense and people might be out to get us. Yeah, with garlic. It's hard. A common seasoning. On Monday, July 11th, 2011, Jonah's older children had flown out to spend time with their mom, who I believe was living on the East Coast, and Rebecca's youngest sister, who was 13, was visiting from Missouri as, like, a birthday present for the summer. Max was supposed to go back to Dina that morning, but she wasn't feeling good. She also had a summer home right around the corner, and they decided they would switch at dinner time instead of in the morning. All right. So Rebecca was making pancakes, Jonah got ready, and he headed off to the gym. They were going to go to the beach and then meet up with Jonah later and go to the zoo. That sounds like such a nice day. It does. I love that. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) What's gonna happen? So Jonah left. Rebecca told Max and her sister to go get ready, and they went up to their rooms on the third floor, and Rebecca was on the first floor. Rebecca seems to have heard, like, a commotion, loud sounds. She ran out and found Max laying on the ground in the first floor in the entryway by the stairs. He was bleeding. There was broken glass everywhere from the chandelier that had been hanging above the stairs, and his scooter was across his legs, and he wasn't breathing. They did have a dog named Ocean that was barking like crazy, and Rebecca said that she, like, took his head into her lap, and that Max said Ocean, and then went unconscious. Rebecca yelled to her sister to get her phone and call 911, and Rebecca's sister dialed 911 at 10, 10 a.m. Her sister's first language wasn't English. The call was confusing. They would be like, is your sister breathing? Because the 911 operator thought Thought that it was her sister who was injured. And then she would hear that and look at Rebecca and be like, yeah, my sister's breathing. Oh, no, but... (sighs) But Rebecca was yelling the address. She was yelling that she was starting CPR. And first responders got there at 10, 12 a.m., just two minutes later. Two minutes. Okay, that's awesome. Rebecca told them that, you know, she heard a crash, she ran out, he said ocean, he passed out, she was doing CPR. Max was moved out of the broken glass by first responders. He was given CPR and a shot of epinephrine, which is adrenaline. Rebecca called Jonah and put him on speakerphone as she spoke with the first responders. He rushed home. And found his son laying in the foyer, still unconscious, being worked on by paramedics, because I think the gym was also just right around the corner. Officer Robert Klein had arrived on the scene, and for some reason he had a psychologist with him who was Karen Hancock. I don't know why, but it kind of works out, because she got to later explain her take on the situation. The pair spoke with Rebecca and her sister. Rebecca asked Klein if they could take him to the hospital, because... Jonah had, like, rushed off. She was, like, anxious. She wanted to go see what was happening. And while they were driving Jonah and her... Or not Jonah. When they were driving Rebecca and her sister to the hospital, Jonah called Rebecca and told her not to come. Oh. Because he was trying to get a hold of Dina, and he was worried that there would be oh, a there confrontation. Would be a, yeah. And he just wanted to figure out what was going on with Max. But they were already on their way there. They waited in the parking lot for a little bit before they turned around and went back home. 
Rebecca made some comments to the psychologist asking her if she should send her sister back to Missouri. And the psychologist was like, wait a little bit to see what state Max is in. And then Rebecca said, Dina's going to kill me. That makes sense. It's like a comment you throw out there. Yeah. I mean, her son's really hurt. And she already didn't like Rebecca. They drove Rebecca and her sister home. Rebecca asked if it was okay to pick up the broken glass. They said it was fine and they left. But while cleaning up the glass, Rebecca's sister got a cut that was bad enough to need stitches. So Rebecca had to take her to an urgent care. While waiting in the lobby, witnesses say that, or in the waiting room, witnesses say that Rebecca was on the phone with a man who sounded very agitated, like they could hear him through the phone, like yelling. And Rebecca kept saying, I'm sorry, I didn't know. When police later looked back at her phone records, this call came in as a private number. That's weird. So they couldn't, they don't know who she was talking to. The doctor who gave Rebecca's sister the stitches, though, said that Rebecca seemed fine emotionally. Like, they were a little bit upset, but it wasn't, like, this traumatic thing. Like, they were talking, they were okay. Max was given two more shots of epinephrine to get his heart going, and he hadn't had a pulse when he arrived to the ER, and it had been 25 to 30 minutes that he'd been going without, like, oxygen. A CT scan was ordered, and he had fractures in his skull, and they did some other tests to figure out what the extent of any brain damage was going to be. Dina, it took a while to get a hold of Dina. She had, like, taken sleeping pills because she had a headache and was taking a nap. She didn't arrive until, like, around dinner time, like, 5 o'clock, and he'd already been moved to the children's hospital. She arrived to see him hook up to a ventilator and all sorts of machines. They had to drill a skull or a hole in his skull to release Release the the pressure pressure. from his brain swelling. There's, like, a... When people have that, there's, like, a bag, and you can see, like, the bag of blood. Yeah. Because my cousin had the car accident, and that's what happened. Yeah, so obviously it destroyed them to see their son like this, but Dina was immediately hopeful. She was like, he's going to be fine, he's going to miss a season of soccer, he might have late entry into kindergarten this year, but he's going to be okay. Like, that's my kid, he's going to pull through. Jonah got a hotel room near the hospital so he could be close to Max, and Dina and him made plans that she would stay with him through the night, and Jonah would stay with him through the day. Jonah would text Rebecca updates on what was going on. Rebecca was trying to get her dog into a kennel. They were trying to arrange, like, friends and family were on their way in to help. Jonah ran home to get a change of clothes. He asked Rebecca to pick up Dina's sister Nina from the airport the following morning, and Rebecca decided she would send her sister back to Missouri, so it worked out that she would be on her way. She would drop Rebecca, or she would drop her sister off, and then pick Nina up. It's gotta be an awkward car ride. On the morning of Tuesday, July 12th, Rebecca said goodbye to her sister, sent her back to Missouri, picked up Nina. When Rebecca saw Nina, Rebecca threw her arms around her and was, like, hugging her, telling her that it was great to see her. And Nina was like, this is weird because this isn't our relationship, but maybe, like, under the circumstances. Like, she just kind of like, pat, pat, okay. Nina was trying to ask Rebecca what happened in the car, and Rebecca was just like, I have no idea what happened, and then changed the subject. Okay. Dina also wanted more information about what happened, and Dina even wanted to talk to Rebecca's little sister, which is, I understand as a mom wanting answers, but, like, you can't demand to talk to a 13-year-old girl. No. Both of the sisters wanted information from Rebecca, and she just stuck by, she came out, he fell, she didn't know what happened. But, I mean, they were a couple floors difference, so that... He was on the third floor originally, and then she was on the first floor, and then he was found on the first floor. Jonah's younger brother, Adam, also traveled to California to be there for Jonah. Adam had been hesitant to go at first, but his own girlfriend, Mary, told him, this is what families do for each other. You need to be there. Good girlfriend. 
So Mary and Adam had been together for almost 20 years, and Mary was almost 20 years older than Adam was. They lived separately, and they had an interesting but seemingly lovely relationship. I don't think that Adam is very emotionally intelligent. Mm -hmm. I think that Mary almost has, like, a mothering Kind of, yeah. I'm not trying to, like, make their, like, relationship perverted or anything. Like, I think it was normal, but it was just interesting. Lived in, like, Kentucky, Tennessee area. He worked as a tugboat captain. Driving tugboats up and down the Mississippi River. Ah, which is weird that that was a job in tugboats. 2011. And now, still, it's just interesting. I think it'd be fun. That Tuesday evening, Jonah, Rebecca, Adam, and Jonah's best friend Howard all went out for dinner together. Like, Jonah took a break from the hospital. He switched off with Dina. He's getting food. Jonah asked Rebecca a few times during the dinner, like, what happened? We are trying to figure out what happened. Like, can you tell me any more? And Rebecca said no, that she doesn't know. She heard a crash, she came out, she found Max. Rebecca asked for a moment alone with Jonah before he went back to his hotel room. They hugged tightly, she was crying. He said that she felt she was he felt she was holding on a lot longer than she normally would have, but I mean she's again, these brothers don't like emotions, guys. Yeah. They're experiencing emotions. Exactly. Jonah said that he didn't blame Rebecca at all, that this was something that could have happened under anybody's watch. They would text each other babe and baby when they were updating each other, like, hey babe, how's it going? Like, I'm good, baby. Jonah even told Dina at one point that Rebecca saved their son's life by giving him CPR and Dina should get on her knees and thank her for saving her son's life. Like, Jonah seemed very much like, you don't get to be pissed at anybody. This could have happened to anybody. She saved him. Yeah, okay, I can see that point of view. Adam and Rebecca headed back to the Spreckles mansion because Adam was going to be staying in the guest house. Adam and Rebecca weren't close, but they had been around each other a handful of times. They chatted on the way back, and Rebecca made an odd comment about the dog, saying that things would have been different if they'd kept the Doberman. But why? Don't know. She's the one who wanted to get rid of the Doberman either. Yeah, don't know. You're just too cute. They arrived home, they were saying goodnight, and as Adam headed around the back to the guest house, Rebecca was going inside the main house, and she said, if I ever drank, I would drink tonight. Fair. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that he really considered trying to console her or check on her. I just, I don't think emotional intelligence is high in this man. He went to the guest house, he got settled in for the night, he took an Ambien. (laughs) Rebecca went inside, she spoke on the phone to her sister Mary for a little while, And Mary said that Rebecca seemed positive and hopeful. Rebecca told Mary that it was nice to see Jonah smile for the first time since the day before and that she was going to try to come out and visit her family at the end of the summer. She mentioned again that her and Jonah might possibly be getting engaged soon, which is a red flag to me that, like, his son is hooked up to a ventilator, like... And you're thinking about engagement. I don't think he's thinking about getting married to you. That's the last thing on his mind, honey. I'm sorry. I think that she has this, like world that she built up in her head and she's gonna cling to it so she ended the call saying she was getting ready for bed because she had to get up early at 8 39 and 8 53 p.m she sent text to her sisters being like i love you she spoke on the phone briefly again with mary at 10 asking if she should explain the cut on her sister's leg to her parents oh yeah from picking up that yeah Dina's sister Nina left the hospital, went back to Dina's house. She wanted to talk to Rebecca. She texted her at 9.41 asking if they could talk. Rebecca never responded. And Nina decided to just walk over because she really wanted to see where Max had fallen and try to get a feel for things. But when she got there, the lights were off. She knocked on the door and nobody answered. And she got there right about 10, which is when Rebecca would have been calling Mary. 
Hmm. She went around the back and was like looking in the back at the at the gate and she could see that a light was on in the house on the second floor in the guest bedroom. But she said that all the lights in the guest house were off and she figured that either Rebecca was trying to avoid her, maybe Rebecca went on a walk. I think Rebecca was just trying to avoid her. She's like, I don't, I want to go to bed. I don't want to talk to my boyfriend's ex's sister. Yeah, she just needs some time to herself. It's understandable. A doctor met with Jonah and Dina that night at the hospital and told them that Max's outlook was not good. Oh. The doctor said that if he ever did regain consciousness, that it was highly unlikely he would ever walk or talk again. But they were still waiting for results on other tests. Dina cried, but was in denial. She's like, my son's going to walk again and he is going to talk again. Fuck you. Jonah was upset with how the doctor delivered the news, but he took what the doctor said to heart and was like, you should have a better bedside manner, but yeah, thanks for the info. Jonah called Rebecca at 12.48 a.m. and left a voicemail for her telling her that Max would probably never walk or talk again. The voicemail was listened to at 12.50 a.m. and then immediately deleted, so that doesn't exist. We don't know for sure what was said. Jonah says that he was relaying what was said to him, but he also admits that he was crying and he's in a state of shock, so he doesn't remember his exact words. Well, yeah, I mean, his son is gonna be... Well, he's not even sure if his son's gonna be okay right now. Completely. Jonah was able to get some sleep, but he didn't hear back from Rebecca. Adam woke up around 3, he used the bathroom, then he went back to sleep until 6 when he got up and got ready, and he walked out into the courtyard at about 6.40 a.m. At 6.48 a.m., Adam made a 911 call. What he said and the way he said it is odd, and it's been speculated over and over again by many people. Adam Shacknight calls and he says, I got a girl. She hung herself in the guest house. Oh my god. And that's the end of part one. What? Part two will be up first thing in the morning. (laughs) Uh, yeah. This is part one of Rebecca's a How. Thanks for listening.